Hello, and welcome again to the Radio Gaga podcast. I'm your host, Justine Pajowski, and today we are diving into the genre known as trip-hop and one of its defining albums, Dummy, by Portishead. My main source was the 33 and a third book on Dummy, written by R.J. Wheaton. This is the longest book in the series that I've read. Wheaton goes into great detail about this album and the universe around it. If you are a Portishead fan and haven't read this book yet, definitely do. I am also excited to welcome today's guest, John Landman. John is the co-founder of entertainment marketing agency, The Syndicate. They do a ton of work in the music industry, so I talked to him a little bit about that, his background as a music fan, and what it was that led him to becoming a fan of Portishead. Yeah, so I mean, the company is 22 years old now, which is is crazy to kind of think about that. Um, but yeah, we really it's basically everything that a record label would do. So it kind of like label services on one side of our business. So we do everything from radio promotion to digital marketing, to street marketing, to PR, uh, consulting, grassroots marketing, all that stuff for, in some cases, it's record labels hiring us. In some cases, it's managers. In some cases, it's even bands. So we're often like the first company that will work with an artist. So it's really exciting for us because we all love music and we all love being part of that artist development story. So you know, for us, we can go work with a band that, you know, may become the next big thing. And we're working with them when they're playing in front of like 35 to 40 people and kind of helping them craft their story, whether it's online or getting their first interview with Sirius XM or whatever it is along the way. So it's really exciting on that front. And then in addition, we also do a lot of work in the comedy space as well, working with television networks and building out activations for our different client partners and then the the side of the business i work on the most is um we do a lot of work in the brand space as well uh in with working with brands and music so we're a taco bell's music agency so we work uh we have a great program called feed the beat where we feed up-and-coming artists on the road each year and then we also work with vans working with them on their uh digital music strategy so it's uh it's really exciting it's like no two days are the same but at the same time, it always comes back to like everything we do, like there's a passion point there and the team, you know, when we decide to work with, with an artist or a project or whatever, it usually comes down to like, do we like this? If we don't like it, we won't do it. So there's always like a, a passion, you know, first and foremost. And I've always said is like one of the company sort of like, you know, values is like blurring the line between work and play. That's always been really, really important for us is that if it doesn't, if it doesn't feel like a job, you're probably going to really enjoy it. And that's been sort of like the the guiding light through it all has been trying to figure out how to keep it fun, how to keep it light. And at the end of the day, as you know, it's still, it's still work. So there are days where, you know, I'll sometimes be on a conference call for an hour. And the big thing is whether an artist will tweet something or not. And, uh, and then you laugh because the tweet goes away in eight seconds. And then that, you know, it's just, it just happened. But that's all, you know, it's, it's all part of the, the programming and part of the plan and, and part of uh, putting these different campaigns together. So it's really interesting. And, you know, I've always been a massive music fan. For me, it was always going to be music or sports. And those are the two things I care about the most. So, you know, for me, being able to work in one of those is really special. Over the years, you've been pretty lucky. Like we've gotten to work with some, some great bands from like day one. So who all like, have, you, have you worked with? 
probably my like the killers we worked with from like literally day one with that band wow. like they were they were signed um to island records in the u.s they put out their first couple singles over in the uk first on an independent label called lizard king and we actually worked them to radio we worked uh somebody told me to radio as an import so it wow, was a really band, but we worked it as an import from the uk um so that was that was pretty amazing like being a part of that whole train from literally like the first day um that was really cool and then we've had some you know other ones we worked eminem back in the day like you know a million years ago wow. like sent out like, 12 inch records of uh slim shady to to, oh. to radio stations and stuff like that and you know over the years like it's still pretty great because we still get to work with like some of my favorite bands like we still get to work with like third man records and jack white and we still get Very to work cool. with bands like pearl jam and and metallica and some of these other like bands that i've always been a fan of and and we can call them clients now too which is just it's amazing and and it's yeah. fun and you know they've definitely seen some things behind the scenes that like you, you sometimes you wonder how the mac and cheese gets made and then you find out and you're like oh okay <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah like don't meet your heroes kind of a thing <laughs> yeah most of most of them have been awesome i will say like i I've, I've everyone i've ever met like that i was a huge fan of has been truly incredible like i, I know that it's like it sounds cliche that uh i'm usually meeting them in a very you know trusted closed environment so i have an opportunity to like talk to them where it's not just like a fanboy thing. It's not like meeting them outside their hotel room kind of thing where they're right. like, so usually it's a little more like I'm introduced to them, you know, in a, in a controlled way. So it's a little, it's a little better, but like there have definitely been some times, like I remember a few years ago, like growing up Duran Duran was like one of my favorite bands and uh, they played a show in New York and we were like all hanging out backstage and like, you know, like one of the guys in the band, like asked me a question for my thought on something. And I was just like, 13 year old, <laughs> knew <laughs> if 13 year old me knew that you were going to ask me a question about something for the next record like uh, my mind my, my head would have rolled off my shoulders like <laughs> what Yeah, I mean, I like lyrics, so I'm listening to the lyrics first and the music second. So it's always been that way that I just, I never, you know, for me, it was always, um, I love going to see music live. Like to me, it was like that feeling you couldn't get anywhere else. And as much as you know, I was raised and like listening to, to music and, you know, my dad and mom, like it was like Billy Joel and Bob Dylan and, you know, a lot of classic rock stuff. And then, you know, you sort of found, you know, for me, it was like, heavy metal was like what I found first. And then like you find those gateway things like Led Zeppelin brings you and connects you to Pink Floyd. And then, you know, you find all these different pieces. And then like I found Rush and I was like, wow. And then girls didn't talk to me in high school. So it was a, <laughs> <laughs> it was a lot of pieces like that. And then you get to college and like everything changes. Like you sort of figure out all the different kind of music that's out there when you meet people from different walks of life. And, and, um, you know, that's sort of like that discovery moment. And, and that's kind of still how it is today. It's different the way you find music now, obviously. But um, it's so interesting because, you know, back when I was growing up, there was things like genres and those don't really exist anymore. Now no, it's, they 
you know, people listen to, you know, hip hop and also listen to like a rock band at the same time. And they don't really feel like it doesn't go together, which is it's really kind of cool, but it's definitely not. It was always how my music listening went, but I always had it sort of categorized as like, this is my favorite hip hop band, or this is my favorite metal band where it's, I don't think people think like that anymore. You know, if I, if I sat you in a room two years ago and I played you the Billie Eilish record and said, this is going to be the biggest artist in the world in two years, we'd all look at each other and be like, really? But, <laughs> yeah. but, but she's amazing. And like the songwriting and the thought process that goes into it and her team is so good, like everything around it, it happens and it all makes sense. And then you see her live and you're like, holy shit, this is like the most real thing I've seen in such a long time that it makes sense. But sometimes you just can't predict where things are going to go that like you'll be at a, a Billie Eilish show and there'll be, you know, a 10 year old girl singing on the top of her lungs next to her dad singing all the same words yeah. and being just as excited about it. So it's exciting to see sort of like that happening too, where there's like really good music that young people are finding and being excited about. Absolutely. Uh, that would have been me and my dad at a Rush concert, by the way. So don't feel bad. Wow. <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> he got I me into that got- band. <laughs> There you go. I finally got my wife to see Rush years ago uh, after years of her making fun of me because of the movie I Love You, Man. Paul oh, Rudd. I love Paul that Rudd. movie. Yeah, it, it's a great movie. It's so Paul, cute Paul how Rudd much was, they're into Rush. Yeah, he was the gateway drug that mm-hmm. uh, that because of that, <laughs> uh, she went and saw Rush. It was really amazing because the funniest thing happened. We we were going to the show it was at Madison square garden and we were in the city early to get dinner. And my buddy texted me. He's like, Hey, are you in the city yet? And I was like, yeah. He's like, you're not going to believe this, but like manager left me two passes. Do you want to come meet rush before the show? What? Oh so my God. I just got I, chills. <laughs> I looked at my wife. I looked at my wife and she looked at me and she was like, I'll go to Macy's. You, you go meet rush. Oh my so God. it was like, it was literally out of, I love you, man. Like me and my buddy, like meeting, you know, Getty and Alex before the show and having that total dork out moment. And it was just, it was like a very full circle moment of, uh, of the, I love you man in full. When I was a kid, I remember like I had the big, uh, the big star man pentagram, uh, Mm -hmm. logo on my wall and my mother, you know, she was like, my parents were great about like letting us listen to whatever we wanted to listen to. And I remember her saying, you know, when you listen to Guns N' Roses and you listen to Motley Crue, like what they're talking about, like drugs or girls, like if you have questions about that, like I can answer them. But I have no idea what the temples of Syrinx are. Like I, I am just, I, I cannot help you with whatever that guy is singing about. And that was like the perfect. Yep, well, it's not what. about like sex or drugs or girls. Don't worry. It's about, oh, yeah. it's <laughs> it's about, about all it's about of the stuff. opposite things. Yeah. yeah, it's about a lot of stuff. <laughs> uh, well, that sounds freaking awesome what you do. Um, so is this, you said the company has been around for 22 years? Yeah. So the company started in, in uh, 1998. We actually like, I was working for a company beforehand called AIM Marketing. I, I went to school in Ithaca, Ithaca College. And um, it's funny, I was actually, I graduated from Ithaca, started working um, for a company in New Jersey called AIM Marketing. And my boss who hired me also helped convince me to start our own company. So she gave me my first opportunity and we're still business partners to this day. So oh, wow. this is all, it's all her fault, 100%. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so like I remember at that time, um, you know, I found Portishead in, in college, you know, like that was like how I found the band. It was like, I was 
remember being a DJ at the station and, and we were playing sour times. And I was like, this is not very good. This is, this is, what is this? This is really mopey and droney. And I definitely didn't get it, but like most great records, it takes a while to sort of like understand what the art form is. And then you need to really listen to it and spend time with it. So, um, yeah, my first impressions of this band was like, not good. <laughs> at what point did you start listening and saying like, oh, I, I kind of get this. I think once I heard the record, I think like this was like one of those those artists that you hear about, like you have to hear the record. And it was one of those things if I put it on, I finally was in like the right mood. I think I was like probably doing a paper or something and it was just on in the background. And then it was just like, oh, wow. Oh, wow. Like I'd never heard anything like this before. It was, it was truly one of those things of like, you know, I didn't know what a, a jazz record sounded like necessarily or like what a blues record sounded like, but I knew where the beats were kind of coming from. And I kind of understood what the, it was this real moody brooding record. And that was it. I was hooked. It was like one of those things of once I heard enough of it and you sort of like, they were so mysterious in like who they were and what the whole project was about. It was hard to get information about it. And like, you know, in 1994, you had like, it was like one of the greatest years of like alternative rock ever. It's like, you had like massive records from like green day and Soundgarden and Pearl jam and like all these big rock records and then this album kind of came out sort of under the radar i think after the fact people have like a lot of revisionist history about it and obviously the record did well overseas and it was like in the height of like blur and oasis coming out of the uk and then you had this portishead record which wound up winning like the mercury prize that year and it was just this, this amazing amazing record and then you, know, you kind of get more information and you do more research and you're like wait there's like all the images and the artwork are based off of a, a movie that they made, but the movie's not available anywhere. What What is this? And then you kind of do a deeper dive and you're like, wait, there's a soundtrack to this movie that may or may not exist. That's on B sides of the songs from the record, but they're not on the record. And it kind of went into this weird place. And I'm like, this makes total sense. Like the, this is like the ultimate deep dive band when there just wasn't that much information out. We'll get to Portishead's film and the early 90s a little later. First, let's go back a little further to the origins of the band's name, which is based on a location. Portishead is the name of a small coastal town near Bristol in the United Kingdom. In the 19th century, Portishead was a Victorian seaside resort and auxiliary dock for Bristol, but by the 80s, it largely served as a bedroom community filled with mainly retirement homes. It certainly wasn't a hub of activity when future Portishead band member Jeff Barrow was growing up there as a kid. He would later tell interviewers it was an incredibly depressing place to spend a childhood. Portishead was a place you could go to and die. Beth Gibbons was born in 1965 in Kynesham, which is an isolated rural community halfway between Bristol and Bath. She and her three sisters grew up on a farm, and it was basically expected that she'd just stay there her whole life, get married, and have babies. But she always felt detached from the town and how it had already decided her fate for her. Beth knew there was more out there than to be a farmer's wife. At 22, she moved away to Bath for a short time, then decided she'd have better luck in Bristol pursuing a career in music. In the late 80s and early 90s, Bristol had become a hub for culture and creativity. Inspired by what was going on in New York, Bristol had hip-hop, punk, and electronic dance all happening at once. There were a ton of musicians and bands that had local cult followings, many of whom would see international success not long after, including Massive Attack, Rip Rig and Panic singer Nana Cherry, and rapper Tricky. 
and perhaps most notably the band we're discussing today, Portishead. England in general was a melting pot of sorts. Disco was still having a moment there by the end of the 80s, as was funk. Then you obviously had a lot of punk still going strong there too. But the upset of the century was hip-hop's arrival across the pond from America. Jeff Barrow told Platform.net that when hip-hop first hit suburban England, it was incredibly exciting. Breakdancing and dance challenges took the place of fights between angsty teens. The dress, the bright red, white, and blue color blocking of brands like Puma and Nike. Graffiti, beatboxing, the Roland 808 drum machine, Africa Bambata's Planet Rock, Public Enemy, Run DMC. Hip-hop wasn't just a trend or a genre, it was a whole culture that came over from America. It was full of energy and life, just the shot in the arm many musicians in England needed. After spending his youth living in Portishead, Jeff Barrow moved to Bristol to be part of the local music scene. He was a talented drummer and DJ for some local hip-hop groups, eventually scoring a job as a tape operator at Bristol's Coach House Studios. In 1991, he assisted with local band Massive Attack's breakthrough record, Blue Lines. This influential album would be the basis of what would eventually be named Trip Hop. Jeff admits he started out at Coach House Studios not knowing how to do much beyond make tea, but he used the time in the studio to learn. After finally learning how to clean tape heads and help out during Massive Attack studio sessions, Jeff started playing around with sampling on a Casio keyboard that was in the studio. He spent hours on end learning about song structure and the spectrum of sound, digging into the psychology of what made a song popular and how the notes hit your ear. He was hungry to learn, and Coach House was the perfect place to do it. Producer Cameron McVeigh, who was working on Blue Lines at the time, saw in the young Jeff Barrow a rare talent and drive, so he bought Jeff a sampler to encourage his experimentation in the studio. Massive Attack also kind of took Jeff under their wing and supported the young talent by giving him some of their spare studio time. He took full advantage and started developing samples and loops that began turning into tracks the whole time staying in step with where hip-hop was heading. By the late 80s, hip-hop had shifted from drum machines back to the art of sampling. This is a huge part of what makes trip-hop what it is. We'll talk a little bit today about crate digging, which is basically slang for finding obscure records with interesting bits that sound cool on a loop or repurposed as a beat. So Barrow was doing some crate digging, but also sampling some of his own work. Barrow was interested in trying out his experimental sounds against, potentially, a soaring female soul voice. He had been searching for a singer for just a short time when he met Beth Gibbons. They met unexpectedly at an Enterprise Allowance course, an unemployment income program for entrepreneurs who were setting up their own business in the UK. They hit it off and talked about music on their coffee breaks, eventually connecting and sending each other music tracks afterward. Barrow had found his singer, and Beth was happy for the opportunity to sing. Also in Bristol around that same time was jazz guitarist Adrian Utley. 
He'd played guitar with Art Blakey's Jazz Messengers and Big John Patton's band. When he moved to Bristol from his native Northampton in the mid-80s, he met Jeff Barrow, and the two immediately hit it off. Jeff and Adrian bonded over the low-end theory by A Tribe Called Quest and Public Enemies' It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back. Adrian shared with Jeff all his knowledge of hard bop jazz, which hip-hop producers were sampling a lot of at the time, and Jeff would share his extensive knowledge of hip-hop and production techniques with Adrian. They began mixing their influences and experimenting together more on the tracks Jeff had been working on. Jeff's new singer, Beth Gibbons, was sent some of the tracks and absolutely nailed the vocals. They all found it to be the perfect fit creatively. There'd soon be a new band out of Bristol. So back to the name of the band, Adrian and Jeff's manager, who was from London, was always calling them the lads from Portishead, and it just stuck. It turned out, too, that people really liked the name, but didn't know that Portishead was a shitty town near Bristol. They just thought it was a cool word. It was almost like Jeff got to take it back, in a way, and redefine it. Dave McDonald, who we'll talk about a lot today, is sometimes named as the fourth member of Portishead. He was their sound engineer on Dummy, who really, in the grand scheme, had just as much of an impact on the album as the other three members. Portishead has had a number of other touring members and collaborators as well, like Tim Saul and Clive Deemer, who plays drums on a majority of the songs on Dummy. But those four, McDonald, Beth Gibbons, Jeff Barrow, and Adrian Utley, are kind of the core group we're talking about today. The etymology of the name trip-hop is hip-hop fused with trippy elements. I like this quote R.J. Wheaton pulled from the June 1994 issue of Mix Mag. Writer Andy Pemberton coined this term, describing trip-hop as, quote, a deft fusion of head-nodding beats, super-fat bass, and an obsessive attention to the kind of otherworldly sounds usually found on acid house records. It comes from the suburbs, not the streets, and with no vocals, you don't need to be American to make it sound convincing. All you need are crazy beats and fucked up sounds, and you've got the most exciting thing to happen to hip-hop in a long time. There was there was Massive Attack who I think like really were the first ones that that what I would call like the trip hop pioneers, but I think Portishead got a lot of the credit for it. <clears throat> I think Portishead did it in a way where it was like they really you really could hear like the record scratching and you could really hear that stuff that like was definitely <clears throat> excuse me, like comes from the hip hop world and from the rap world. And you know, I think one of the interviews that I was listening to, like from KEXP a couple of years ago, like, you know. Jeff talked about like being a huge fan of like DJ Premier from Gangstar and like that that's like a perfect analogy of like I loved Gangstar so it made perfect sense that I understood what he was doing with that record scratching um, to make like that an instrument but it was also I think touring for them like you know most of their set lists were exactly the same you know they really? didn't they didn't they didn't change it up too much no it was like for the first record it was pretty much the same set list from the second record it was pretty much the same set list so. I think there's also a little bit of a, they may have gotten bored, which I don't know if that's the case or not, but um, it definitely seemed like they were going to kind of go out on top and go out on their own way. And then they put out that record 
you know, in 2008, the, the album Third, which I think was good, but it's not as good as the first two records by any means. Why do you think they decided to come back? I don't know. It's a good question. Um, I have no idea. Probably, they probably got the itch, I'm, I'm assuming. Uh, they also played a lot of festivals that year. So there may have been uh, financial ramifications. Who knows? Interesting. <laughs> you, okay. You never know. Yeah. But no, I'm sure they I'm sure they just wanted to to get out and do it again, which um, you know, the songs are timeless. There probably was a demand also for for more music from them. And I think if they just announced, you know, tomorrow they were coming back, they would sell more tickets now than they ever sold back in the day. I mean, post pandemic. Right. Oh my God. <laughs> I can't even begin to fathom how this is going to change the music industry in general. I it's mean, changed. you must it's, be seeing it firsthand. Yeah, it's really scary. It's yeah. really, I mean, like the fact that our business, like from the live touring aspect is like <clears throat> completely shut down right now. And really, you know, I think people are hopeful that by the end of the summer, it will be back to normal. But I don't know. I, I think you're going to see a lot of stuff pushed into fourth quarter and then even 2021. So it's uh, it's definitely a it's definitely a weird time. It's unprecedented time, and I think for the most part, we're kind of like we're hoping for the best. And um, there's a lot of people's careers who are on hold, you know, who work in the business, and then there's also all those artists who, you know, now are kind of sitting home and trying to figure out what to do and and how to make ends meet. And I think for the bigger bands, it's not as catastrophic, but for the smaller artists who really rely on touring to pay the bills, it's it's awful. For the most part. You know, now that it is shut down, it's like, you know, if you want to really help a band, go buy a piece of merch, you know, go buy, go buy the record from the band. That money will go, you know, as directly to them as possible. But that's the number one way right now to help an artist. You know, the streaming stuff, it definitely helps the labels and in turn will eventually help the artists. But the stuff that will help the most directly is buying directly from the bands right now, for Good sure. All right. Everyone yeah. listening to this, go buy. Go Help buy. Them out. <laughs> Not a bad. If you were thinking about that T-shirt that you've been putting off, like that, <laughs> that twenty-five dollars right now is probably a good spend. And and you know when they can ship it out to you, you'll get it. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Got to got to support the small businesses. That's right. Bands bands are small businesses too. They sure are. Back when, you know, this album came out, like, you know, Bjork is already a massive star. So I think like Bjork, well, probably not on a parallel path to Portishead. I think Bjork sets the tone for like, you can be an individual and you can have really interesting sounding music and <clears throat> it's going to challenge you listening wise. And then like, like you said, Massive Attack was right there. And then like, you know, I think you know, tricky, you know, kind of coming out of that massive attack camp. And then there were so many artists after that, you know, I think of like, like sneaker pimps probably had like the biggest hit song with that song, six underground, like from that whole world where they figured out how to make a pop song out of like trip hop in quotes, you know, there was zero seven Hoover phonic, you know, some people would say like gold frap, you know, air, like a lot of artists that came afterwards that were influenced by Portishead, 
that and i think even now today like artists like churches and you know some of these other artists like i think you could definitely hear that they're like they, they were listening maybe they i don't know if they were fans directly or not but i feel like from the way that their records sound you can hear that they're definitely you know the the music didn't really die it just kind of progressed and changed a little bit and i think that the way people play you know not having a turntable live with an artist like this and it being replaced by a computer and a keyboard um, probably explains a lot of that because when Portishead played live, they still had, you know, there was a DJ element to it live. A couple production notes before we dive into Portishead's debut album. Dummy was recorded at State of the Art Studios on the east side of Bristol. Jeff Barrow, Adrian Utley, and Dave McDonald started out by recording everything first, then they'd bring Beth in for the vocal tracks later. A signature part of the Portishead sound is sampling and looping. Sometimes the band would find samples from other songs, but a lot of the time they would sample themselves. The process of finding a sample from another band was just literally crate digging and exploring. Dave McDonald tells RJ Wheaton that they just have tons and tons of records, and Jeff would start looping them at the beginning of the day. Together, they'd listen through these records, find different loops, and explore them further, but it was just this constant loop bubbling all day with new sounds and ideas. They'd slow tracks down and speed tracks up to hear different things. Sometimes they'd save down to tape, sometimes not. But it was a very fluid situation that ended up resulting in a number of samples on Dummy, most of which we'll cover today when we get to the tracks. Portishead also chose to produce their own samples. Jeff and Adrian would work with a lot of Adrian's friends in the music industry to create these loop concepts. Jeff would play drums, Adrian would top off with guitar and bass, and they'd add things in as needed. It not only allowed the band more creative control over their own samples, but made it harder for their sound to be reproduced by imitators. It's really remarkable what all Portishead was able to accomplish before sound processing plugins like Pro Tools. They did all the mixing manually. And they were kind of mixing as they went along, not after a whole song was completed. Once they'd figured out, say, a two-minute loop, they'd manipulate and process it, maybe bounce it down to cassette and press it back onto vinyl. They did all this crazy stuff with it before passing it back to the sampler. We'll talk a lot more today about some of the specific sounds we hear on Dummy, and specifically how they were created. But the genesis of a lot of the Portishead sound was their collection of old vintage instruments. By this time, the early 90s, you had most any sound you could think of as a preset on a keyboard. But whenever possible, they chose the hard route because to them, older instruments had character. We'll talk about the Fender Rhodes piano, the Cymbalum, and a replacement option for the theremin. They also used two Vox Continental Combo organs, a Hammond organ that accidentally caught fire in the studio one day, and perhaps most important of all, analog tape. All the material that was recorded will be bounced to cassette so that some of the mushy qualities like cassette noise and other imperfections would come across in the final product. For them, the crappier the machine, the better they liked the sound. The band loves vinyl crackles too, which you'll hear across the board on Dummy. In fact, they're so prevalent that when this album first came out, people were, would be returning their CDs to the store saying it sounded like the one they'd received was damaged. As R.J. Wheaton astutely points out, most of the qualities abundant in pop music lyrics are completely absent from Dummy. Tenderness. Unconditional love. The words I love you are never said. The album doesn't address infidelity or moments that lead to dancing. It never reassures us that things are going to be okay. And that's just in the lyrics. The sound of Portishead, the sound of Dummy, 
feels soothing, at the same time, it feels traumatic. It can lull you to sleep and then unexpectedly shock you awake. We'll touch a lot on the instrumentation of Dummy and Portishead in general and all the ways they created the otherworldly sounds we hear throughout the record. The cover artwork of Dummy comes from that film John mentioned earlier. Portishead members Jeff Barrow and Adrian Utley were both super influenced by film scores of the late 60s and early 70s. The two loved how these composers could create suspense and other emotions without the crucial instruments that scores had to work with in the 80s and later. So they created a film starring all the members of Portishead, complete with a soundtrack. Explain the soundtrack thing to the movie that doesn't exist. So the movie does exist. There's a 10-minute there's a movie called To Kill a Dead Man. But at the time, like, you couldn't find it anywhere. It was basically, like, something that I didn't see until many, many years later. I think I actually saw it when the Live from Roseland DVD came out, because I think they actually bundled it on there. So there's, like, a 10-minute movie that it's definitely on YouTube somewhere. And it's kind of like a Alfred Hitchcock meets, like, David Lynch weird it's it's soundtrack by portishead that's it's all songs that are not on dummy but the album cover of dummy like the the whole album cover and like all the pictures inside the album are from this film but like no one really knew this film actually existed like even on the back of the of the the cd or record there's like a little poster of what this movie is in the corner of it but they never really explained what it is so um it's a 10 minute movie it's really interesting it's like a the sort of plot summed up really quickly is like a guy hires a hitman to kill his wife and it's like all the members of portishead and then but he doesn't something goes wrong and then in the end the wife gets revenge because the wife hires the same hitman to kill her husband kind of kind of thing okay and then sour times plays as the movie credit credits roll so like Ooh. I think this thing was meant to like introduce the band, but even like I think online they're kind of like we didn't realize how hard it was to make a movie, so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but it's worth watching. But it's definitely like there's just I think it kind of sets up that this this band was always like supposed to be a soundtrack to something, um, and sonically it always to me it always sounded like like if James Bond was played by a woman, this is like what the soundtrack would sound Ooh, like. Oh, I like that. Yeah, I do a lot of uh, fe- feminist uh, theory classes in school. So <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I would love to read any of the dissertations that you did. <laughs> They're probably not very good. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I gotta go watch that. I was thinking. I was thinking when you were saying, you know, I hadn't seen the. I hadn't seen the movie, you know, until way after it originally came out, and I was like, well, just look on YouTube. But in 1994. <laughs> Yeah, you know. 1994, 1997, 1998, YouTube was like a thing that still hadn't been thought of. So. Right, right. <laughs> it is part of like the thing I miss the most about liner notes is like you, that was like your homework assignment from a band. Like you'd read, you know, who produced the record and like who the guests on the record were or like where it was recorded. And that would lead you to other discovery pieces. And even now there are times where like we'll be working with a band and I won't realize someone is guesting on it until... Like I read the one sheet and I'm like, how can we have listened to this for two months and not known that so-and-so is on the record? So it's sometimes like that information that I used to like really cherish as, as a kid that I think that, and I think like the context clues of 
these kind of things when you were looking for more information just aren't there from, you know, listening on, on the DSPs. To Kill a Dead Man pulls in a lot of Jeff and Adrian's musical soundtrack influences. Listen to the theme from To Kill a Dead Man. It sounds like it belongs behind an old silent horror film. With that, let's get into Dummy, starting with the first track, Misterons. The song's title comes from Captain Scarlet and the Misterons, a campy 60s children's sci-fi television show. The Misterons are the villains, disembodied aliens with booming voices. This is the voice of the Misterons. We know that you can hear us, Earthmen. Listen for the vocal sample at the very beginning of this song. The scratches sound a little bit like the aliens. Also, right before Beth begins singing, at about 22 seconds, you can very faintly hear a manipulated male voice saying, Portis Head. is that draws you into Portishead? It's definitely the it's definitely to me the lyrics and the sonic the textures like the the what the sounds they're producing and sort of the unexpected turns they take like there's really highs and really lows in a lot of these songs and it's just it sounds like a you know like it does sound like a, a soundtrack to something really cool you don't you don't necessarily know what it's going to be but there's definitely certain songs like I think when I think about this record, like the first song, Mysterons, like that is like they literally wrote that as like a a space themed song, and you that's exactly what it sounds like. And there's songs like, you know, Roads, which is just unbelievable and just really deep and dark and weird. And so I think it's just that. I think it's like you know they talk about like perfect headphone records. This is a headphone record. This is an album you can put on. You put your your really good sounding noise canceling headphones on. You shut your eyes and you're like, wow, I did not expect to hear that. And I think that's part of sort of what this band did was they just made great sounding records. They knew what they were doing. And, um, you know, for me also, I said earlier, like lyrics are a big deal and, and best lyrics are amazing. Like They're really, really amazing. Like, it really is like this, like, like a really powerful 
sort of um, statement at times on, on, you know, sort of like what's going on sociologically. But then at the same time, it's like almost like this femme fatale kind of feeling to it as well. So um, just always just kind of hooked me in. introduces us to a bevy of interesting sounds, including a tight snare beat throughout and the sound of a theremin. This was created by the Roland SH-101 synthesizer, as the band couldn't find themselves a real theremin at the time. By the end, we hear the Roland SH-101 layered on again, this time a sharp crescendo that sounds super spacey, almost like you're being themed up. Not to mention Beth Gibbons' voice. We'll talk about her quite a bit as we go through the songs on Dummy, but her performance on Mr. Ons is beautiful. She sings with the kind of intimacy and command that makes you forget stuff. You know those people you hear speak, and they have such a cool, rich voice that they could read the dictionary and you wouldn't tire of it? Beth Gibbons' singing voice is like that for me. It's like a tractor beam pulling me in. Another one of the things that makes Portishead so engaging for me as a music listener is how they manipulate frequencies to create a shift in the sound actually hitting your ear. You can hear this happening all throughout the album, especially in the drums. R.J. Wheaton spoke to recordist Jay Hodgson about how the aggression in Mr. Ons was achieved. Hodgson says he hears a frequency boom in what's called the danger range. The danger range is an area of the mid-range of human hearing that's so good, it doesn't take a lot of volume to make something sound really, really loud. Punk records are often mastered so the mid-range is right out front, giving you that aggression and volume. Throughout this whole album, the drums are a great indicator of frequency, just like on Mr. Ons. On the track Biscuit, for example, the snare sounds harsh and noisy, while on a song like It's a Fire, the frequency is pulled up, making the snare super tight and sharp. John and I talked about the fact that Dummy is a fantastic headphone album, and this is one major reason why. They're consistently changing up not just what you're hearing, but how you're hearing it. Next up is the song that got me into Portishead in the first place, Sour Times. This is such a cool song. Nobody loves me. It's true. Not like you do. 
until I started listening to Portishead, which was last year. I, oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. No, I'm super new to this band. Well, I shouldn't say it was last. I, I heard. So the first <laughs> time I heard Portishead was not Portishead. It was Girl Talk. And it okay. was in college. And it was mixed with, what was it? Oh, it was Girl Talk had mixed Sour Times with uh, Big Boy and Cuddy's Shutterbug. It's like the ultimate, uh, is it a breakup song? Is it a <laughs> love song? Is it a, like, just an emo song? Like, what is it? It's just so good. It's so, mo it has, like, all of the moods. And I think that um, definitely, like, I misunderstood, like, this being, like, the first single and the first song people heard of Portishead, I think, is always a really interesting choice. Um, because it is, like, to me, it's the most, like, you kind of get it right away. But even like I didn't get it right away. So um, I think it is like just it's a great song. The music is amazing. And people know this is like the Nobody Loves Me song. And that's always, yeah. uh, you know, it's always a good thing when you, you can you can, you know, it identifies even without it being the, not the name of the song necessarily. My favorite part about Sour Times is the twangy guitar and reverberating cymbalum, which is similar to a hammered dulcimer. Remember how we talked about Portishead being super into old film soundtracks? Among their favorite composers were the horror king John Carpenter, spaghetti western master Ennio Morricone, and Lalo Schifrin, who I had never heard the name of but most certainly have heard his music. Schifrin is well known for his work on films including Dirty Harry and Cool Hand Luke, as well as almost scoring William Friedkin's 1973 masterpiece, The Exorcist. Apparently, Schifrin's music paired with the imagery in the original trailer for The Exorcist was so disturbing that people vomited, so it was banned. But perhaps Lalo Schifrin's most enduring compositions are the ones he composed for the long-running Mission Impossible TV series. Portishead's Sour Times samples one of the tracks Schifrin composed for the series, titled Danube Incident. This should sound familiar. Next track on Dummy is Strangers. Uh, 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 uh,
Similar to the hip-hop genre, Dummy is a really bass-heavy album with low-frequency, indistinct beats. Bass frequencies have the longest waveforms, so they travel further than other higher frequencies. That's why a sound like a foghorn is audible from really far away. Strangers is so bass-saturated that you get that same sort of feeling. You could hear this song coming from a mile away, a foghorn in the dark night. A little bit like standing on the docks of Portishead. Could Be Sweet was the first track completed for Dummy. Beth had written it and brought it to Jeff really early on. It has a little different feel, maybe more mainstream perhaps than the other songs on the album. I can't put my finger on it. The instrumentals sound like they were 95% done on an 808 drum machine with very little outside influence like in the other tracks. The horn sounds are interesting, a reference to the 80s R&B mainstay. I hear the Fender Rhodes piano too, that soft little melody part. There's a few things going on, but It Could Be Sweet has a lot less dynamic range than most of the other tracks on the album. It's pretty straightforward in my eyes. Maybe the other songs have just spoiled me. We'll get a lot into Beth's vocal performance and the things she does to augment her voice, but the equipment and processing also had a lot to do with the sound. Beth recorded all her vocals on an AKG 414 condenser microphone, which Dave McDonald handpicked because of his love for old sounding vocals. Beth's tracks are also highly compressed, meaning her vocals are processed in a way that collapses the dynamic range. The compression takes the volume of quieter elements of Beth's singing, like breaths and whispers, and brings that up closer to the naturally louder elements. It results in us being able to hear every breath, every nuance. And when this album is playing in your headphones, you truly feel like she's singing right in your ear. McDonald also will sometimes run Beth's vocals through a Roland Space Echo delay unit, which was a popular sound throughout the 70s and 80s, especially in reggae music. Thanks to Synth Mania on YouTube for this example of the Space Echo unit. At every point in the recording process, the goal was to keep Beth's voice front and center. And they do just that in the next track, Wandering Star. 
I love the way it builds. I think that uh, this is like one of those like perfect opportunities of how the scratching is so prevalent and it's like, it's an instrument in the music and it really does sound like a hip hop song. Like it really sounds like someone's going to come in rapping midway through it and it, it doesn't, but it's sort of like where that would come in, just the music breaks down and it's just, it's awesome. It's like a masterful job of like what they do at their best. All their songs, they don't sound that dissimilar, but they all have like very signature defining moments that you know what song you're listening to, which is like something really interesting with a band like this, because I think tonality, I could see how people could kind of get bored of like listening to four or five Portishead songs in a row. Like they're like the ultimate, like when one of their songs comes up on shuffle, you're like, it's like you almost stop in your tracks. Um, but I think this is a song that's just like, it's just kind of, it has that tempo the entire time. Another interesting thing I read about Portishead's recording of Dummy was that their working processes were very much separate. It was only after the release of Dummy that Jeff Barrow and Beth Gibbons actually started to get to know each other. A lot of the time, Jeff would come to Beth with an already finished instrumental track, so it wasn't that much of a collaborative environment in the typical sense. But it wasn't really personal, it was just that Beth was still pretty new in the group, and they didn't have a ton in common at the get-go. Portishead didn't drink or do drugs in the studio or socialize much at all. They were all so focused and dedicated to the music, that's what they had in common. The interpersonal relationships, or lack thereof, didn't have quite as much of an effect on the recording process as they might have in any other band. Beth always tried to add something to the music, never to detract from it. She described it to Orr magazine in 1995 as a math problem, one to be researched, measured, and tested. I sometimes like imagining what these songs must have sounded like before Beth recorded her vocals. Some feel like they might have started out scarier and she brought a piece to them. Or the opposite, where the track sounds lighter and her vocals bring this level of horror. I'll let you be the judge of which one Wandering Star is. It's honestly a toss-up. Just a fully scary yet somehow oddly peaceful track. But I can't figure out why.
The next song, It's a Fire, is the moment on Dummy that has grown on me the most. It's a fire These dreams have passed me by This salvation I desire Keeps getting me down Cause we need to Recognize It sounds very like churchy with the organs yeah. and such. I wonder if they were trying to make any kind of like commentary with that. You know, I have no idea. I haven't thought about that, but it's very possible. I think with any of this stuff, I mean, it's very possible. I have no idea. You know, it's a good question. I would have to go back and actually re-listen with that in mind, but yeah, I didn't hear, I didn't hear overly religious stuff on it, but at the same time, you know, there's usually some undertones that we're not supposed <laughs> to pick up on. Right, right. <laughs> of It's a Fire within the context of this album is interesting to me. It's the most peaceful track on the album, and it's sandwiched in between Wandering Star and Numb, two of what I believe are the most unnerving tracks on Dummy. It helps create a pace to this album that keeps things somewhat light, well, musically anyway. The lyrics of It's a Fire are still very disturbing, an emotional thrill ride that from line to line takes me from an apex of hope to the depths of despair in a matter of seconds. I didn't realize it upon first listen, but when these lyrics hit me for the first time, they definitely made me cry. Not from how pretty they were, but how traumatic. There is a fire inside us that burns for what we believe in, but this life is a farce. Carry on, you can do it, breathe on, sister. Like a fool. Like I wanna cry just saying these out loud right now. So intense. So breathe on, sister. In my research, I found a pretty cover of this song done by Amy Lee. You can tell her voice is very much influenced by Bess. So let it be known for what we believe in. I can see no reason. I can't breathe through this mask 
Next up is Numb. Like I mentioned, this is one of the more unsettling songs on Dummy, with its steady, empty snare hits, cutting synthesizer, and an organ droning through a Leslie speaker throughout. Gibbons has said her songwriting process is about creating an atmosphere by juggling words around. Meaning, her lyrics aren't just lyrics about something, they're three-dimensional. She uses syllables, emphasis, and other expressions within her delivery to create lyrical lines that aren't just about the words, they're about how the words are expressed within the confines of the instrumentals. Just like you can treat instruments in different ways to get unique sounds, Beth does the same with her lyrics. Dummy's lyrics explore the self, isolation, suffering, abandonment, but these are never the singular story of each song. There's never a, a real narrative, like, oh, this song is about this feeling. Instead, the lyrics approach each feeling with a sense of perplexity already built in. It's like being confused about being confused. The lyrics are fragmented by design, never to fully reveal their meanings or state outright how you should personally feel about them. Beth told Stuart Clark in 1995 that the lyrics on Dummy aren't just about her personal suffering. They're more asking questions, trying to communicate, and wondering if anyone else feels these things too. She says, quote, If it does reach the point where it gets uncomfortably personal, I tend to disguise what I'm saying in the phrasing. The next track is Rhodes. The title is spelled R-O-A-D-S, Rhodes, but I wonder if it's a reference to the Fender Rhodes piano, R-H-O-D-E-S, because of how front and center this instrument is in the song. Listen for the passage that starts us off. Thank you. 
piano was invented by a man named Harold Rhodes, who was well known for his teaching methods on piano. In his early 30s, Rhodes joined the Army Air Corps during World War II and would teach piano to fellow recovering soldiers. It was there that he invented what would later become the Rhodes piano. Just like a normal piano, the Rhodes uses black and white keys that, when pressed down, pivot hammers on the inside of the unit. But while in a piano, those hammers are hitting reverberating strings, in the Rhodes piano, the hammers hit thin metal prongs that reverberate between an electromagnetic pickup. A signal is then sent to an amp rather than the natural volume of a conventional piano. One of the most famous uses of the Rhodes is the Doors' Ray Manzarek playing it in Riders on the Storm. Other notable users of the Rhodes are Stevie Wonder, Chick Corea, and Donald Fagan of Steely Dan. Next up is pedestal. We hear a very clear example of the reverb, mega compression, and frequency manipulation this vocal track has been through. That, paired with Beth's style and emphasis and hang on different syllables, it sounds like she's speaking a different language. Also listen for the drum track here again, especially the ride cymbals. Dave McDonald has compressed those too, almost to the point where it sounds like they're being sucked in and played in reverse. Crazy. R.J. Wheaton makes a great point in his book that there's a duality of tension present all across this album. A song like Pedestal is incredibly abstract, yet it sounds like a jazzy ballad. Wandering Star is a little bit terrifying, but also suggests elements of a lullaby. Portishead constantly keeps us on our toes in this way. Dummy is an album of contrasts in every way. It feels both human and artificial, of this world and otherworldly, made of 20th century hip-hop and 19th century antiquities. Even between the vocals and instrumentals, the vocals sound like Beth is singing right next to your head, while the background music sounds like it's reverberating off the walls of a concert hall. These contrasts are what make the album so immediately arresting, and what made those who tried to imitate the Portishead sound frequently self-implode. The second to last track on Dummy is Biscuit. 
sounds like someone is continuously kicking dirt into the tape. It feels warped, creepy, and decayed. Very, very cool track. Critics would say the dummy sounded like nothing else on Earth, meaning that literally. Like its origins were the netherworld, or outer space, somewhere otherworldly. Dummy would become associated with the unusual. Passages from Biscuit and Mr. Ons were featured in the 1994 TV special Weird Night on BBC, all programming related to the paranormal. In Biscuit, Portis had samples a slowed-down version of Johnny Ray's 1959 song, I'll Never Fall in Love Again. I'll never fall in love again It's all over now It takes a heart to know the end I tried to take the chance to feel the thrill of Funny how upbeat that song is, versus how Portishead has slowed and weathered it to the point of sounding almost scary. On to the last track, and what most would consider the best on Dummy, Glory Box. A glory box, known also as a hope chest, is a case that in the past would be used by young unmarried women to collect clothing and household items in preparation for married life. As we find listening to the lyrics, the irony is delicious. Box is one of my favorite songs of all time. Like all time, you know, I kind of touched upon it earlier, but I think it's like when I meet people who have never heard the band, I almost want to like play Glory Box for them and like watch them react because they usually have this like, whoa, like they've never heard. And, and like part of it is like the crazy sample that's in there. Like it, the sample is so good. And it's, um, uh, who is it? It's Isaac Hayes is the sample. Ike's rap is like the song underneath it. And 
when you hear it, it's like, it's so familiar, but you can't place it at the time. And then the words are just awesome. I mean, it's like literally like, like the greatest lyrics to me ever. And like, it's for someone who loves lyrics and someone who also, like I joked about earlier, it's like the, you know, definitely took my share of feminist theory courses and, but just the words of like, you know, um, you know, don't you stop being a man, but, but take a look from our side when you can, you know, it's just like, like, so a little tenderness, like it don't matter if you cry. It's like, I'd never heard that before. Like I just had never heard those things before. And uh, it's like, give me a reason to love you and give me a reason to be a woman. And I was just like, wow, I just (laughs) never heard that. Yeah, it's beautiful. To me, it's beautiful. And then like the thing that always sticks with me is that at that Live in Roseland show, she is smoking a cigarette the entire song. God damn, that's badass. She's she's singing (laughs) this song. And she's got her her hands, and like obviously, I'm, this is probably not going to be video, but she's got her hands like draping the microphone with a lit cigarette, just getting more and more burned as she's singing. I don't even think she in, she takes a puff out of the cigarette the entire song. It's just like burning as she's singing this song. It's just so cool. It was just it's just the coolest thing I ever saw. In the last year, there was an iPhone commercial and there was an artist named Snow Allegra. And she actually sampled the same Isaac Hayes song. See, I thought it was a glory box thing for a while. And if you actually like watch the commercial, you're going to be like, wait, was that that wasn't Portishead? And it's not. (laughs) It just uses the same sample. Um, But it's really interesting because it's like, at first I was like, wow, Portishead. And then I was like, whoa, no, they're just using the same sample. I apologize now. See, because after suffering so much, I know that I was wrong. interview with Ben Thompson in 1994, Beth Gibbons disclosed her thoughts on Glory Box and what the song meant to her. She said, quote, 
the key line in the song really is move over and give us some room because I do think women are very much taken for granted. I'm more an easygoing than a rabid feminist, but women in general are very supportive to men. History has made them like that. And this is not something that's always reciprocated. I just so Miles Shoal was responsible for mastering Dummy, approaching it with a focus on contrast, and taking what Portishead gave him and making it a little bit more extreme. In a time in music where the focus was so heavily on just volume, Dummy and all of its ebbs and flows and imperfections stood out from the crowd. Marketer Tony Crean headed up promotion of this record. Because the band wasn't psyched on doing interviews and definitely hated touring, Crean had to get creative. First thing he did was place a bunch of mannequins around the city of London, all painted blue, marked only with the letter P. Cool idea. Dummy, Portishead, blue, it really works. Except that these dummies were so off-putting and strange that the anti-terrorist squad was called in to check for explosive devices. Crean was all about just putting the P of Portishead everywhere. He'd go into pubs and leave boxes of matches with just the letter P on them. And in the middle of the night, he projected a bright, giant P onto the side of the huge building belonging to MI6, Britain's Central Intelligence Agency, right on the River Thames. In the end, the guerrilla marketing campaign ended up creating some buzz, but it wouldn't matter. Dummy would quickly achieve worldwide fame way beyond the confines of London. And it happened fast. Dummy was an instant success in 1994, both in their native UK and across the pond with US audiences. Kurt Cobain had just died a few months earlier, marking the beginning of the end for grunge, and a large plaid-clad faction of music fans with freshly opened minds were curious at this new blend of hip-hop, alternative, and spaced-out weirdness. In addition to winning the prestigious Mercury Prize in the UK, Dummy has solidified its place in history as one of the best albums of the 1990s, and in my eyes, on the shortlist for best debut album by anyone ever. But although Dummy was massively successful, Portishead was thrust unwillingly into a world they didn't want to live in, and a mandatory part of what they had to do was go on tour. Portishead didn't have the experience a lot of other bands do, where you start playing to crowds of one or two at dive bars, and as you go on and become more successful, the crowds get bigger and bigger. Due to the sudden popularity of Dummy, Portishead's crowds numbered in the thousands from the get-go. And the band hated touring. They hated travel. Beth was shy to a fault on stage. It just wasn't their scene. Though everyone loved Portishead, the band couldn't take the recognition. They never wanted the limelight. They didn't want to be the face of anything. 
They just wanted to make music they loved. Here's John. You know, they they never got into this to be like award winners or to have this critical acclaim. I think they just made some records they were really proud of. And then they became like the people who invented trip hop, you know? And I think that was just a title they didn't want to necessarily carry around. Uh, I think they were also like, sort of miscategorized because like we kind of talked about earlier, they're kind of genreless. Like, you know, they probably have more in common, you know, like with Billie Holiday than they do with like an alternative band in 1994 or 1996 or 97. So I think it's just like, they made these great records that, you know, they were sort of put into like this box. Cause at the time, like alternative rock music and I'm using air quotes was like the thing you called it, but they didn't really fit in sonically with any of those artists. And I think it just gets to a point where they were just like, we're done. Like we, we made a couple of really great records. Like there's no, nothing else for us to do. And it's probably also a level of like, you don't want to make the same record again. And I think a lot of bands from, you know, now it's a little bit different because I think that the audiences are expecting their sound to change. And I don't know if back then people were just expecting, you know, a radical left or right turn from a band like Portishead. Do you think that if they, this is just a hypothetical but if they were to put Dummy out now, then it would be more successful and they would, the fact that they're genreless, but coming out in 2020, it feels like a kind of like a Billie Eilish moment. It could, you know, it's funny. We It could be, it, it's very possible it could be. I don't know. I think there's like moments in time where like the perfect album comes out at the perfect time. And I do think that now people would probably be ready for this record and be anticipating this kind of record. But I think for a band that liked to be a little reclusive, it'd probably be impossible right now for them to be reclusive because <clears throat> everyone would want to know what's this song about? What's this song about? How'd you, what was your thinking on this song? And they never really provided that. Like, like Beth never really talked about where the lyrics come from or, you know, they were always kind of very, you know, very uh, purposely ambiguous about a lot of stuff that I think people now want to know because we've become so invasive in finding out information about these artists and about the songs. So it'd be interesting. I don't know if it would be any, you know, if we'd have that lightning in a bottle moment. I think it's still a really smart record and maybe the, maybe the opposite would happen because everyone is so used to singles and not listening to albums front to back that maybe this album would get less attention now um, because they'd just be listening to one song at a time versus this is like a complete record. Writing for the band's second album, Portishead, proved to be an immobilizing experience for the band. They barely expected Dummy to crack 30,000 record sales, let alone be a global success. How are they supposed to follow that up? Plus, by this time, the band had begun hearing copycat versions of their songs all over TV commercials and from other bands. Trip-hop had become a massive success, yet they were horrified at the cheapening of their music and the overgeneralization of Portishead as the assumed figurehead of the genre. They hated it. Adrian Utley in a 1997 interview says that he and Jeff started distrusting their own sound and everything they believed in. So they imposed rules upon themselves that they thought would help keep them original. No more Fender Rhodes piano, a mainstay of the dummy sound. No more strings, no more guitar, no theremin. But ultimately, the studio time didn't feel right until they allowed themselves to break their own rules. After about five months working through everything, the band released its self-titled Portishead in 1997. 
Portishead recorded and released their only live album, Roseland NYC Live, in 1998. John was at that show. So I saw them live twice. Uh, the first time, I think it was the first time I saw them at Hammerstein Ballroom, and it was a pretty normal setup, but um, seeing them do the live Roseland performance, that was pr- probably the greatest show I've ever been to. No, no, wow. no, no lie. Because, you know, Roseland was a really great venue in New York City, and it held about 3,000 people. And during the day and, and at night where there weren't concerts, it was actually a ballroom for, for ballroom dancing. So they had this amazing wooden floor, and it was just the place where, like, every touring band that could sell 3000 tickets so like the first time you saw rage against the machine was at roseland the first time you saw you know some of those kind of bands it was at roseland it was also a place like in new york before you could play like radio city or a bigger place that's where you played so it was a very every band that was like on that that progression up played roseland so when we heard they were doing this show at roseland and it was going to have a full orchestra we were trying to figure out like how are they going to do this on the stage at Roseland. It just didn't seem, seemed weird. And it was a hard ticket to get. I remember I got a ticket from a label friend of a label guy, a friend of mine, and it was like the toughest ticket to get. And when we got in there. What they did was they put the band and the orchestra on the floor. So they basically had the crowd sitting in like, uh, they put bleachers that were like three or four rows up and the bleachers surrounded the band and the orchestra so it was completely set up differently than any concert would be so um because the band took up most of the floor i mean the video i don't know if you've seen the live video of live from roseland but it's it's amazing how many people they had playing the music so i think that was how it was always meant to be played live with that full like 30 piece orchestra you know every single you know 10 keyboards the whole thing and it was perfect like it was one of those things where I was sitting right across from Beth and it was kind of funny because we realized we were never going to be on video because the camera boom was sort of in, in the track was right in front of us. Okay. So yeah. the, cam- the camera was never going to turn around. So for like, if when it first came out, I was like, are we in it? Are we in it? And then I was like, <laughs> Oh, we're definitely not. In it. There's the cameras are facing all the wrong directions. You're but in it. In it, was, it was awesome. <laughs> it was awesome to be at. And I remember when we were, uh, it's actually something we still joke about. Like there's, uh, there's scalpers outside, um, you know, selling tickets for the show. And it was like, definitely had never heard of Portishead before. And there was a guy who was like, you know, who wants tickets for the Portahead? Who needs Portahead the tickets? Port-a-head. And they're like, still to this day, like my wife and I will call them Portahead sometimes. So, I love uh, it. Yeah. So, but it was, it was honestly, it was like one of those shows and like, the, the, what came out on the album was like definitely less than what they played. Like they played like a full set and then like an 11 track version came out. So, but it was awesome. And like, it was, you know, I think it's just, just really cool seeing a band like that, do something like that, that you knew wasn't going to happen again um, with that kind of setup and that kind of situation. And just knowing they were making a live record and, you know, I stole the sign off the uh, the wall at Roseland that was like, "We're we're recording this show tonight. You're giving us your likeness." Which you kind of see those things now, and you're like, "They're in er- everywhere because everyone's recording everything." But back then, it was like, "Oh, this is even more special." Yeah. It's like the su- souvenir for the night. Um, so yeah, that live they were amazing. They probably just didn't like touring that much, and there wasn't a lot of banter between songs. It was very much like, here's what we do. And, you know, I don't don't think Beth said more than like four words, the whole show. So it was what you see is what you get. 
It would be a decade until they'd put out music again as Portishead. Between 1998 and 2008, the members of the band laid fairly low. Adrian Utley worked on soundtracks and contributed to the 2000 album Felt Mountain by Goldfrapp. He also helped out Beth Gibbons on the album Out of Season, which was a collaboration with former Talk Talk bassist Paul Webb. Jeff Barrow spent some time in Australia looking for a musical spark and never really finding one. He ended up founding a record label, Invada, with Australian hip-hop producer Catalyst. Dave McDonald returned to live work with artists including Sigur Rose, Adele, and Florence and the Machine. The band got back into the studio again to record music for their next and final album, Third, which released in 2008. The album departed fairly significantly from the trip-hop sound they'd pioneered on Dummy. was widely loved by critics and fans, and the band went on to play a number of festivals in the coming years after the album's release. They keep getting together to put out singles here and there, like their cover of S.O.S. by ABBA in the wake of the 2016 murder of British Parliament member Joe Cox and the Brexit vote. It's fully creepy. It used to be so nice to One other thing I learned, so Alex Garland is one of my favorite directors. He did Annihilation, Ex Machina, and the FX Hulu series Devs, which I absolutely loved. Jeff Barrow of Portishead, along with Ben Salisbury, composed the music for all of those. They also did some music for Black Mirror. This was one of the more disturbing tracks I remember from Devs. They really pushed the TV music boundaries, and it set such a cool tone for the show. Though Portishead continues to hint at more music, it's been 12 years since Third. So what would have happened if Portishead had kept going with studio albums? Would they have become more mainstream or stuck to their underground sensibilities? John and I talked about this a little bit. I think like probably one of my favorite songs that sort of came after this on Massive Attack's 2019 album Mezzanine. That was the reissue in 2019. The actual album came out in 2006. Nope, that's not true either. It was before that. Sorry. All these remixes. 1998. <laughs> that's when it came out. Um, the song Teardrop. When you hear Teardrop, you'll be like, oh, this is like what could have happened for Portishead to me. Oh, okay. Like this this song in particular, like it perfected where I think things were going to go for Portishead. So when I hear Teardrop by Massive Attack, that's like 
What if this would have been really commercial sounding, potentially? I love the closing quote in R.J. Wheaton's book from recording artist Nikki Lynette, who names Portishead an influence. Lynette says, quote, If you listen to the Dummy album, it does not sound like they were trying to define the times. It doesn't sound like they were trying to define this whole subgenre. It doesn't sound like they were trying to relate to millions and millions of people. They just did. End quote. It perfectly captures the ethos of Portishead and their masterwork, Dummy. What a treat it's been to get to know this album better. Thank you so much again to John Landman for being my guest today. If you want to hear more from him, he's at John Landman on Instagram. And you can also follow the syndicate at thesyn.com. And thanks to you all for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please share the Radio Gaga podcast with a friend. Be sure to follow along at Radio Gaga podcast on Instagram, where I share what I'm listening to, music news, and other updates. In the next episode, we're diving into the unmistakable sound of James Bond music. Though all the scoring and intro themes have been written and performed by different people, every Bond song still sounds like a Bond song. We'll talk about all the themes that have become the musical throughline of the franchise and some of the music theory that goes behind making it have that instantly recognizable James Bond sound. I'll see you back here next time. 